Hey, listeners. Before we jump in, we just wanted to say that we hope you are enjoying time with your families during this Christmas season. Because that's what we're doing. Hope you enjoy this listen from a Christmas past. Hey listeners, thanks for dropping in. I'm Christy. And I'm Melissa. And this is Buried Motives, where we dig deep into the details of some of the most gruesome dirtbag murderers. Hey listeners, welcome back to Buried Motives. And Merry Christmas. It's our Christmas case because Christmas is upon us in just a couple of days. Melissa gave us a little bit of a heads up in our last case that this is about a real Grinch. So I'm excited to hear all about it. This guy is a piece of work. He's going to be a special kind of Grinchy dirtbag. But today, before we get into our case, we want to spread Christmas cheer, (laughs) love, peace, and joy, acceptance of everybody (laughs) for just a brief moment. Because that is what Christmas is all about. So we want to wish all of our listeners a Merry Christmas, Happy Holidays, or whatever you celebrate. Yeah, and your gift to us is listening to our episodes and possibly giving us a review on Apple Podcast. Sorry, my little shameless plug. We definitely appreciate when you do that. All right, I'm anxious to hear. What you got for us today, Melissa? So this case is a little bit of craziness. (laughs) It's a little bit of a lot. (laughs) (laughs) And I say the name Gene Simmons, who comes to mind for you? Well, when you first told me, my mind went to Richard Simmons. I was thinking that it was, you know, like the fitness guru guy with the big hair. Yes. And, you know, squeeze your buns, that guy. <laughs> Sweat into the oldies. Yes, and the tight leotards. Yeah, the whole jumpsuit. He was a little bit odd. He was, but oh my gosh, I smiled every time I saw him. And he was all about making people happy. Yeah. Yeah, he had a good attitude. Yeah. But that wasn't Gene Simmons. No. So who do you think of when you hear Gene Simmons? I think of Kiss. Kiss, Kiss, of course. (laughs) Yeah, and he was really odd, actually. Yeah, like you said, he was an odd duck. Yeah. (laughs) You're talking about odd ducks? He definitely was. So today we're going to talk about Ronald Gene Simmons, who also went by Gene Simmons. And Ah. just like the singer-songwriter that shared that name, he was an odd duck, too. And he would also become infamous, although for much more sinister reasons than the singer. Aww. Ronald Gene Simmons would become known as the United States' worst family annihilator. <gasps> oh, you must have enjoyed doing this case. Yes. I, I know. <laughs> no, because you like, you know what I mean? We all know I like couple killings and Melissa is intrigued with family annihilation. Yeah. While I've been researching this one, I've been super excited to tell you about it. So yeah. were you researching this while you're planning like your Christmas dinner with all your family? And she's yes. Got a sly little smile on her face <laughs> while she's typing away. <laughs> Yes, absolutely. Because when he's planning his Christmas dinner, it's not one you want to attend. So he was known as the United States' worst family annihilator. And that's quite a title. He would earn that record by how many people he killed. Oh, my. His killing of 14 members of his immediate family would go unnoticed for days. And it wouldn't be until he took his rampage into the small community of Russellville, Arkansas, killing two more people and injuring four more that his family was even noticed missing. (gasps) Oh! What? Okay, 14? Oh my gosh. He annihilates his whole immediate family. Wow. And then goes on to murder a few more people after that. Yeah. 
The family members' deaths were just one of the wrongs that Gene would commit against them. He made their lives a living hell. He was a tyrannical abuser that isolated them and withheld common life necessities to meet his own needs to be in control of everything. Oh, what a dirtbag. So today we're going to dig deep into how it all began for Gene and find out what led up to this not-so-peaceful Christmas in the Simmons residence. He really is a Grinch. He stink, stank, stunk. <laughs> he actually did. We're oh, going to no. get into it. <laughs> I showed Christy a picture of him earlier and he totally stink, stank, stunk. Oh, yeah. He looked, well, before his court pictures, just like this hairy mountain guy. Mm-hmm. So Ronald Gene Simmons was born on July 15th, 1940 in Chicago, Illinois, to Loretta and William Simmons. Just before he turned three, his dad died suddenly of a stroke, leaving his mother to care for him on her own in the 1940s. During this time period, a woman's position was not very stable without a husband. She would be married within a year to another man named William, William D. Griffin, a civil engineer for the Army. From all accounts, they had a pretty normal life with no reports of abuse ever being filed, which... I thought at the time in the 40s. Yeah, it probably was never really filed. Yeah. Yeah, you kept quiet. Yeah. And I, everyone minded their own business. Right. So it, because there was no reports being filed, I don't think it necessarily means that there wasn't any abuse taking place. But it sounds like from his siblings that they lived a pretty normal childhood for the time period. Okay. Mm -hmm. So one point of potential trauma for Gene would be from William's military career. Because of his military career, the family had to move around a lot, preventing them from having any real stability or a community feeling. And for most kids, they can adjust to this kind of lifestyle. But it appears that it was particularly hard for Gene. Gene had a need for control, and these tendencies were noted from a very early age by family members. Huh. He would often break into fits of rage for not getting his way, hitting younger siblings, and manipulating his parents. His brother would describe him as a bully and a tyrant and that he would never back down or admit that he was wrong. It's so interesting how a lot of the times when we're talking about these people after the fact, how they have such similar traits in their childhood and how you can see it in hindsight. Mm -hmm. But we are never expecting our child to turn into that type of a monster. Yeah, you would never expect no, that, right? but it does happen. And then looking back, you're like, oh, okay, he wasn't dealing with things in a healthy way. And so had we not had the luxury of knowing what Gene goes on to do in his adult life, I think most of us would say that this behavior is kind of normal for those kids that struggle to express themselves in a positive way. Like he was just having difficulty making his needs known. For sure. And mm -hmm. by moving around, he doesn't have control over that. So then he's trying to take control over the things that he can. But with Gene, it seems that he would never learn how to develop any sort of real empathy for others. His emotions and actions all seem to be centered on his need to stabilize his world by controlling everything and anyone in it. Ooh, so it sounds like he's a narcissistic psychopath. Yep. <laughs> I think by my professional <laughs> true crime enthusiast opinion. <laughs> I think you've got this one right. <laughs> because the family moved around a lot, he was constantly the new kid in school. Along with the difficulty he had with social interactions, he never made any real friends. In school, he got the reputation for being a bully and a troublemaker. And without staying in one place very long, the teachers never had time to really figure him out. So he never had any support or social teaching. And I don't think at the time it was actually a very common thing in those days anyway. So even if he had stayed in one place very long, who knows if someone would have actually recognized that his violent and disruptive nature stemmed from his need for control. Right. Because this would have been like the 50s that he's going to school. Yeah. And so yeah, I don't think... Not a lot it... of mental health discussion at all. No. 
For a few years, when he was in grade two, the family would live in Hector, Arkansas, and this would be a reprieve for everyone because this was a consistent environment that was remote and removed from the outside social world. Jean found an environment that was simple and predictable. For Jean, this secluded farmhouse without running water was a paradise, and his behavior settled down for a short time. As an adult, Jean would continue to try to replicate this idyllic time in his life when he lived the simple life. Huh, so it was like a reprieve for him. Mm -hmm. Because it was so simple, it was... Just down to the basics. It was down to the basics. They didn't have a lot of interaction from like other people that he was able to just kind of live his life how he wanted to. Huh, so he really is a hairy mountain man. He is. <laughs> Yeah. See, I might be judgy, but I'm all, I'm right on a lot of the times. <laughs> so unfortunately, the family would have to move from there only a few years later, and Jean's troubles would begin again. In school, his behavior would not respond to any discipline from the school or his family, and he would eventually be expelled from public school. Wow. He was sent to Catholic school, but that only lasted a few short months there as well because his behavior was so bad. Huh. He just could not be controlled. He just kept lashing out. And and it's just too bad that there was probably not the aid that we have nowadays to help this poor child. No, there wasn't. Because it sounds like he needed professional help. Yeah, I would think so. So as a last resort, his parents enrolled him in military school, desperate for something to get him to behave. And to everyone's amazement, Gene flourished. It was almost as if his difficult behaviors disappeared overnight. He didn't break under the strict order and pressure of the school's rigorous routines. He thrived. He discovered a sense of peace and purpose in the midst of the constant routine of military school. His aggressive impulses were transformed into constructive goals within the military structure, and his desire to have complete control over the environment around him became a reality. That makes sense, actually. Mm -hmm. So he just did so well in military school. Oh, it's unfortunate they couldn't have just left him there forever. <laughs> well, that's what he chooses to do as a profession. On September 15, 1957, Jean decided at the age of 17 to drop out of school and join the U.S. Navy. He was first stationed at the Naval Station Bremerton in Washington, and it was there that he would meet Bersabi Rebecca Ulibari at a USO dance hall. Becky was a beautiful young girl, social and kind, and she was smitten with Jean. He was more serious than all the other boys stern in a way that made him seem more like a man's man, and his social awkwardness actually made him endearing to her. The two started dating and corresponding regularly. Becky was an avid writer and made the best pen pal when Jean was away. She would refer to him as my Jean in letters and was completely smitten with him. So smitten that she didn't really recognize how his influence was affecting her. Becky's family would later say that Becky was a meek woman and was accommodating and dependent. And that was not a good combination with Jean's stern, opinionated personality. She definitely checked off all Jean's needs, but her needs would rarely be taken into account. Jean would use Becky's nature against her to fulfill his need for control. Oh, yeah. This sounds like a recipe for disaster. Mm -hmm. He's so controlling and she's so meek and submissive, wanting to please. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I can totally see him, even if it's subconsciously, choosing her because he knows he can control her and take advantage. Well, she would be just that much more appealing to him, right? Yeah. Oh, no. While they were dating, Becky began to change her appearance based on Jean's suggestions, keeping her luscious locks, once her pride and joy, always tied back because Jean felt that vanity was a sin and that the only person that Becky needed to look nice for was him. Their personalities were really the perfect storm for the later abuse that Becky would endure. 
They were married on July 9th, 1960, and Jean's controlling nature and Becky's submissiveness would just increase. He would set routines and cleaning regimes up in their home, and Becky would strive to do them with exactness so that she could win Jean's happiness. Oh. Jean rarely smiled, and so Becky felt that if she could do things just right, it would make him happier. But whatever she did, it was never good enough. Over the years, Jean gradually eroded her former confidence with constant corrections and complaints that she was not smart enough to follow the correct procedures. Becky became completely reliant on him for approval. When Becky would wash dishes, Jean would say things like, Careful there, my clumsy girl. Now that's the way to do it. You're getting the hang of it. Now do the rest again, just like that. <gasps> and so he would make her constantly rewash oh. the dishes. Oh, this is stirring something inside of me. Like, this is so toxic. Mm -hmm. Ladies or gentlemen, if you're in a relationship like this, you need to get out. Absolutely. Wow. Right from the start. So degrading. And it's not that physical abuse that everybody kind of watches out for, right? He wasn't, at this point, smacking her around. He was just kind of letting her know, oh, you're such a clumsy girl. Here, this is the way you need to do this. Right. Trying to make it sound like a term of endearment. Yep. My clumsy girl. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Come meet my clumsy fists, sir. <laughs> Sorry, this is like, this is stirring something up in me. <laughs> yeah. And it's all to fulfill his need to have everything done the way he needs it done. So with exactness, if she scrubbed the dishes in the wrong direction, he would make her do all of the dishes again. And he would dictate every part of her life. And because she was submissive and just wanted to please him, she wanted to make him happy. She had that desire to mm. please him. She just kept on trying to do it better and better each time. But no matter how hard she tried, he just put in more rules. Yeah, it would be a slow manipulation. Mm -hmm. And oh. that's harder to recognize the abuse. Over the next 18 years, Becky and Jean would have seven children. The first was Ronald Jean, born in 1961, soon after they were married. Next came Sheila Marie in 1963. Then William, or Billy, was born in 1965. Loretta would come in 1970. Eddie in 1973. Marianne in 1976. And the last one, Rebecca, or Little Becky, would come in 1979. That's a lot. It's a lot of kids. Which would only just increase her workload. Imagine over these 18 years what point he has her at. And he now has seven more people yeah. to order around. Ugh. Gene had a successful career in the Navy, but as the children arrived, he felt the need to be closer to his growing family. In 1963, he left the Navy and tried to fit in with the civilian workforce. Outside the military, though, he lacked the structure and the clear guidelines of strict order that he craved. A brief bank job lasted only four months. So he just struggled to hold down any job because he didn't have the structure that he needed in his life. So he was flailing. Yeah, he tried to make up for it at home by making the regiments and the cleaning schedules, but it still wasn't meeting that niche. Within two years of leaving the Navy, he had re-enlisted, but this time he enlisted with the Air Force. Over the next 22 years, he was awarded the Bronze Star, the Republic of Vietnam Cross for his service as an airman, and the Air Force Ribbon of Excellence in Marksmanship. Wow. While stationed in Vietnam, he was transferred to the Office of Special Investigations. And this particular appointment was perfect for Gene's ego. It made him feel like he knew more than everyone else. And when Gene retired on November 30th in 1979, he held the rank of Master Sergeant. His compulsive personality in the military setting earned him respect because he was the model of efficiency and proper protocol. Oh, I bet. So he just thrived in this military setting. When he was at home, Gene expected the same sort of efficiency, though. And can you imagine that? No. With seven kids no. trying to 
No, and I was, when you're talking about the dates, he retired soon after little Becky was born, their last child. Mm -hmm. So they're right in the chaos of it when he's retiring and spending all this time at home. Yeah. And how do you keep seven children, seven little children in close succession under militant rule? There's no humane way to do that. Nope. When the children started arriving, Gene's need for control over his household grew even stronger. Even when he was serving away, he had set schedules for meals, laundry, and cleaning. He controlled the finances, paying all the bills himself and only allowing Becky a small allowance, which usually wasn't enough to cover decent meals for his ever-growing family. Her family would say that she was only given a mere $40 a month. A month? Mm-hmm. And what does that translate today? $317 today. $317 for a family of five. A month. Wow. I don't know about where our listeners live, but in Canada, that would not do you. No, you would not no. be able to live on that at all. Uh-uh. It wasn't that Gene wasn't making enough money to support them. He was making a decent living in the military, but he did struggle with money management. And he would go out and buy things for himself, like motorbikes and things like that. <gasps> oh, what a dirtbag. Uh-huh. But he would limit Becky's cash and the money that she needed to care for their family. Yeah. And it sounds like her cash is just for basic necessities Mm -hmm. where he's going and buying motorcycles for himself and she's probably needing new shoes. I think mostly it was just a way to exert control over Becky when he was away from home. So yeah. And to keep her dependent on him. Mm -hmm. She wouldn't have any money to do anything while he was away. That's terrible. It's one thing if he's not making enough money and they're having, that's what they're having to live off and scrimp. But if the kids are going hungry and you're buying motorcycles, something's wrong. Yeah, some of the reports about his tours of service. When he was in Vietnam, he actually had a maid and a cook for him. And they're struggling to get by on $40 a month. That's insane. I told you I didn't like him. (laughs) I knew it. (laughs) He is a Grinchy dirtbag for sure. He's Scrooge. (laughs) He's the Grinch and Scrooge. If the Grinch and Scrooge had a baby. (laughs) It would be Ronald Gene Simmons. That's right. (laughs) Over the years, it seems that Becky had become so used to Gene's verbal and emotional and financial abuse that she didn't even recognize it as such. In her diaries, Becky continued to call Gene, my Gene, endearingly. When she would express frustration over his overbearing ways, she would almost always include a statement about how Gene probably knew best. But this is the era too, right? Where Mm -hmm. you need to be the good little housewife. You make yourself look pretty before he comes home. The kids are seen, not heard. This is the era of Lysol douching. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And you're going to be shipwrecked if you don't use this Lysol. Yeah. Because I'll hail the husband and he He's taking advantage of that. That's really sad. It wasn't until Jean was stationed in England in the United States that the physical abuse would start to take place. But by then, Becky felt that the beatings were deserved because of her incompetencies. Yeah, she started to believe that she's Mm -hmm. clumsy Becky. Yeah, when he started beating her, she just felt like, oh, well, he needs to do that because... I need to learn my lesson, which is what he told her. So he's totally brainwashed her. Mm -hmm. The next place the family was stationed was in San Francisco, but this only lasted for a short time because the environment was too provoking for Jean. With its free love and hippie idealistics, Jean was constantly being rubbed the wrong way. Oh, I bet. Mm -hmm. And even like the... Not really vanity, but that type of, you know, let your hair down, let it all hang out. Yeah. And the lack of structure of like everybody do what you want. Yeah. No, it did not go well for him. It's interesting that he's now moving around when he did not enjoy that as a child, but now he's doing that with his family. Yeah. He does the exact same thing. But because in his day-to-day life and his structure, the military career just, he did all the paperwork and he was so proficient at it that he just did so well. And it was such a calming environment for him that he was happy 
happy to do that and move around. Yeah, all Gene's needs were being met. Mm -hmm. Didn't matter if his family's were. No, and I don't think he ever recognized. And it's just total speculation that it was his moving around that caused him to feel insecure and to have a constant need for control. Right. So I don't know if he was that self-aware at all. Probably not. No. So his assignment was changed in 1976 to the Space and Missile Systems Organization in Cloudcroft, New Mexico. There, Gene bought a proper home for his family, even though he had to go into a large amount of debt for it. Oh, so that's he, surprising. He felt that this big house that he was going to turn into that childhood home that he had had in Hector. Okay. With Gene home every night now, the family's dynamics would become even more strict. Gene severed all of Becky's ties with her family once they moved to New Mexico. He even forbade her to receive her own mail. He would hold the only key to the post office box and would read all of the incoming and outgoing mail. Oh. This restriction with mail was made even worse because Gene would not allow a phone in the house. <gasps> totally isolating her. Mm -hmm. Becky was not allowed to leave the house without him and the children were forced to do chores around the clock and not just normal chores but like hard physical labor building fences and retaining walls and essentially oh. creating a fortress from the outside world where he could keep his family in isolation i don't like where this is going oh it's gonna get worse hold on the children were allowed to go to school and they were expected to get good grades and to behave well they were also expected to keep their family life private and were not allowed to have friends over or go to friends houses after school and this was probably the reason that nobody really raised any suspicions about what was going on in the Simmons home. The superintendent of the Dover District of School Board would later say that the children were bright, clean, generally quiet, personable when drawn out, with no apparent home problems. Wow. They had no idea what was going on behind these walls. They were probably just these perfectly well-behaved children, and so they didn't raise any red flags. Nope. There were no red flags at all. Oh. In 1979, Becky gave birth to the couple's seventh child, Rebecca Lynn. Because of the trauma of the birth, the doctor advised Becky that she should not have any more children. Jean was furious because he believed that having offspring was a measure of a man's virility. Ugh. It wasn't until it was explained to him several times that Becky would most likely die in subsequent childbirth and that would leave him with all the kids to care for that he begrudgingly agreed to sign the consent papers to allow Becky to have a tubal ligation. Wow. So this was back in the time that husbands actually had to give consent for their wives. That is so crazy. Mm -hmm. And that's not that long ago. No. Nope. Like we're talking 40 years. It's not. But he didn't want this to happen at all. And he can't spread his seed. Well, just wait. Oh, no. This was a very significant event in the family's history. No. Jean would never forgive Becky for putting her own needs in front of his and their families. <gasps> her life? Yep, her life. Her own needs? Because you don't want to die. Yep. I'm going to be very angry with you. Yeah. So angry, in fact, that he would refuse to have sex with her after this because she was of no use to him. Oh, my goodness. Mm -hmm. What a creep. Yeah. He is awful. He is he such is. a dirtbag. This set the stage for him to turn his sights on his second oldest child, Sheila. Aww. She had always been Jean's favorite. And since the age of 13, he had taken a special interest in her. She was his little princess or his ladybug. He oh. would show her favoritism by bringing her small gifts and giving her money for lunches at school when the other children received only criticism and insults. When Becky was of no use to Jean anymore, Jean started grooming his daughter to take Becky's role in the house. Oh. And in the bedroom. 
Uh-huh. Oh, no. On trips to the grocery store, because remember, Becky's not allowed to leave the house without him. Right. So he would drive her into the grocery store to run her errands. Sheila was allowed to come along, and she would get the honor of sitting in the front seat with Jean, <gasps> and Becky was forced to sit in the back, completely humiliated. Oh, my goodness. That's she- so terrible. Yeah. She watched as her husband became more affectionate towards their daughter. <gasps> no. That's so terrible. And I just so- want to, like, throat punch this guy right now. In the summer of 1980, Jean took Sheila away on a car trip to California to a coin collector exhibit. And so this was something that the two of them kind of developed a special bond over as they would collect coins. And this was a time that the family didn't have a lot of money. And all of a sudden, he decided that he and Sheila were going to go on a trip just by themselves. It was during this trip that he would rape Sheila for the first time at the age of 15. No. Mm Mm-hmm. In March 1981, Jean sat the whole family down, minus Sheila, whom he had dropped off at her prom, and told them the joyous news that their family would be growing once again. Sheila was pregnant with his child. Oh no. Jean made it very clear that this child would be accepted completely and that he would continue his incestuous relationship. Becky said nothing. (gasps) I was just thinking of Becky. Like, can you imagine? No. No. We both have older daughters. Like, can you imagine? And it wasn't that just he just raped his daughter. He actually was setting her up to take over the family. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Becky, after this, dropped into a deep depression. Oh, for sure. And just didn't say anything at all. And she just felt probably so helpless. Mm -hmm. So this news was too much for little Gene, though, the oldest of the family. He was enraged with his father and he knew something had to be done. But he also recognized that it had to be done very carefully. He anonymously told a counselor at school about the incestuous pregnancy. Good for him. That would have taken some guts to do that. Absolutely. Because his dad is such a tyrant. Yeah. On April 3rd, an investigation was opened by the Cloudcroft, New Mexico Department of Human Services for the allegations that Gene had fathered a child with his 17-year-old daughter Sheila, whom he had been sexually abusing. The investigation was difficult at first because Sheila refused to admit who the father was, even though she had told a girl at school that had then passed on that information. So she had talked about it to somebody else, but when she was actually under investigation and and they were questioning her, she refused to tell them who it was. During the investigation, the family was ordered to undergo family counseling sessions. <laughs> After a month of questioning, Sheila would eventually give in and tell them that her father had impregnated her. Oh. Jean was unashamed of the abuse, claiming that he had done it for Sheila's own good in order to protect and teach her. What? Mm-hmm. How does that protect and teach her? Well, he was just teaching her her spot and what women were for. And this is, you know, your role. But she's not your woman. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. He saw nothing wrong with what he had done and basically dismissed the counselor's questions. He was frustrated that outsiders were poking their nose into his business and he was mad at Sheila for telling the truth and causing the family to be brought into disrepute. Yeah, that's on you, bud. Mm -hmm. That has nothing to do with your baby. Yeah. Oh my gosh. In a surviving letter from this time period that Jean had wrote to Sheila, he said, you have destroyed me. You have destroyed my trust in you and I will see you in hell. Oh. So he th- he's threatening Sheila at this time. Wow. Mm-hmm. And just making it more like that's even manipulative, even in that, you know, you've broken my trust. No, we don't have that. This is not your wife. This is not your relationship. This is your daughter. Mm-hmm. And it's just those unveiled threats. He didn't tell her that he was going to kill her, but I'll see you in hell. Right. And it's just making her believe that she has a part in this. Like she was completely innocent. Oh, but she's he's a saying, victim. Yeah. But he's saying, you're going to go to hell too. Wow. It's your fault too. 
However, Gene wasn't completely clueless about the whole situation and how it could turn out for him. He knew that if the investigation continued, he could be charged and go to jail. Just as Sheila gave birth to a daughter on June 17, 1981, who they called Sylvia Gale, Gene fled the state with his three daughters and told Becky and the boys to move their things in secret. So he ran off with the three girls and held oh that no. over Becky's head and told them, pack up and meet me here. In August, when the deputies drove out to the property to serve the arrest warrant for his incestuous relationship, the Simmons family had vanished. Wow. Nothing would ever come of that arrest warrant. No. The case was eventually closed because they weren't able to find or prosecute Gene. They had just fled the state. That's so unfortunate. And what a little weasel. I'll flee with the girls and I'll leave my wife to go and move the whole house. You know how what a job that is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Of course he left it to her to do. I think he took the three girls because if he had just fled by himself, I don't think any of them would have followed. No. But he took the three girls and so Becky had that need to protect them. So she did exactly what he told her to do. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And she'd probably be worried for the other girls too if he's already done this to his oldest daughter. Yeah. The family moved to Arkansas. One settled in a rental in Ward. The older boys, little Jean and Billy, left and struck out on their own. They're like, we're done. Good. But for the rest of the family, not much changed. Jean continued his tyrannical ways and continued his incestuous relationship with Sheila. In the summer of 1983, Gene moved his family to Dover, Arkansas, in Pope County. At the time, the family was in serious financial crisis. They were heavily in debt because of the house that they had fled from in New Mexico. Gene had left a good-paying job there as a civil service employee for the Air Force's computer science division and was now struggling to find a job that paid enough to take care of Becky and the remaining six children at home. Gene had to work several low-paying jobs to support his family, but every job kind of seemed beneath him, and so he didn't do a very good job at it. Not surprised. Mm -hmm. But his financial difficulties didn't keep him from trying to recapture the idealistic home of his youth. In the summer of 1983, Gene would again try to build an off-the-grid farm. He purchased 250 Broomfield Road just outside of Dover, Arkansas, not far from Hector and his childhood home that he oh. idealized. It was a 14-acre piece of land that Gene dubbed Mockingbird Hill. The long, winding driveway of rutted red clay, Gene named Little Princess Lane to honor Sheila. So creepy. Mm-hmm. Like, these names he's coming up with are not creepy, but in this situation, totally creepy. He lined the driveway with dozens of no trespassing signs and gated the entrance and erected a barbed wire fence. Or he didn't do it. He made the kids do it. Oh, for sure. Mm -hmm. It was quite the fortress for the modest house. It was really just a jury-rigged structure comprising of two mobile homes joined together and its various additions. Huh. So it wasn't really like a house. It was, right. it was just a shack. Of, yeah just thrown together. As usual, there was no phone and the only indoor plumbing went to the shower. Water for cleaning and cooking was caught in jugs and buckets lined up along the east trough of the house. Ooh! Because they couldn't afford building supplies, Gene started to collect random things that he felt might be useful for future projects around the house. These building supplies were kept in haphazardous piles around the property, giving it the whole appearance of a junkyard. So they had to cook and clean from the east trough water? Mm-hmm. That could have been very clean. Holy Hannah. Gene would continue the tradition of making his children do backbreaking labor to build a 10-foot-high fence with cinder blocks and barbed wire fence and made the children dig the pits for their own outhouses. He justified all this by saying that the chores kept the children out of trouble and taught them good work ethic. But really, it was probably just a test of which children were still going to obey him. 
By the end of 1983, Sheila was pregnant for a second time. This time, Gene forced her to have a secret abortion, even though he told what? others that he was against abortion because he what? didn't want he didn't want to have the problems with the authorities. This makes no sense to me. No. At all. Because his wife Becky is useless because she can't provide him with a child and now his daughter is pregnant with his child and he doesn't want it. Yeah, if he didn't want another child, he could have stopped having sex with his daughter. Well, regardless, <laughs> should have stopped having sex with his right. daughter. But, but this yeah. just goes against like, yeah, that. why are you having sex with her then? You're not having sex with your wife because she can't produce a child. Mm -hmm. So you're just being a creepy dirtbag. Yeah. And it really was an obsession with Sheila that was spurning on his continued relationship with her. Oh. And this just kind of makes that more evident that it wasn't about the children now. Well, people will see you in hell, Jean. Yeah. Your letter will come true. Not Sheila, but people will. Yeah. After the forced abortion, Sheila's attitude changed. She threw herself into her schoolwork and would attend Droughton School of Business in Little Rock. It was at school that Sheila met Dennis McNulty. This bright and caring young man gradually gained Sheila's trust and she began to open up to him about her family life. Jean was not happy about this arrangement at all and hoped to scare away the boy from his ladybug. Ooh. Jean would tell Sheila that no man would ever want her because of the things that she had done with him. And that if Dennis really learned who Sylvia's real father was, that he would no longer profess any love to Sheila. What Jean didn't know was that Sheila had actually told Dennis already. And oh. Dennis had agreed to take Sylvia on as his own. Oh. Such a stand-up guy, right? With Dennis's support, Sheila openly defiled her father, and she and Dennis were married in September of 1984, without Jean's blessing, and the rest of the family looked on as the new family member stood up to Jean. Good. She needed someone to, to protect her. He was the very first one to kind of stand up openly to him, because little Jean had turned him in, but he had done it anonymously, so right. they never knew where that report came from. But this is the first guy that actually stood up and said, what you're doing is wrong. And I bet that went over well. Oh, no. Not well at all. After Sheila's marriage that Gene viewed as a betrayal, he fell into a depressive state, caring even less about his appearance than before and became even more recluse, even to his family. He expressed his anger and hurt that he felt towards Sheila in audio tapes and letters that he would send her. And these disturbing tapes would just prove the extent of his obsession with Sheila. Oh. For a brief time, Gene would try to substitute the obsession he felt for Sheila onto Loretta, his second oldest no. daughter. But his advances were met with a much more independent personality. Loretta shut down his advances and avoided him completely. Oh, yeah. Can you imagine the terror living with that? No. Nope. No, like you would want to stay far away from dad. But by all accounts, Loretta was a little bit of a firecracker. She was sarcastic and she would kind of talk back to her dad. Good. And so when he started to come at her, she was not having any of it. After his failed attempts to seduce his second daughter, he would turn his attention to Kathy Kendrick, a 25-year-old that he worked with. She too would spurn his advances. He was a creepy, old, unkept, balding man with Ugh. a long gray beard and the worst personality. So not a big shock that she wasn't turned on by this married man. Yeah, and he's washing in dirty water. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> See, yep. stink, stink, stunk. Ooh. When he would not take no for an answer, she went to her boss and he was fired for inappropriate behavior. Wow. Mm -hmm. So this is new for him. Women actually standing up to him. That's right. Gene was losing his touch with the ladies. And instead of finding satisfaction or order in his appointment that he had when he was in the military, he found his work degrading. 
Jean had difficulty accepting that he was not the one giving orders anymore, especially when they came from women. In 1985, he was working two jobs, one at the Sinclair Mini Mart in Russellville and the other at Woodland Motor Freight in Russellville as well. He had to submit to the authority of a female supervisor. <laughs> Something he had never done in his life. I love that because yep. he would have hated it. Joyce Butts, his female supervisor, would criticize him for not doing any office task correctly. I love this little bit of karma right here. <laughs> she was the only one to reprimand him for his conduct towards Kathy Kendrick and went as far to enter a notice of reprimand on his personal file. Good. So all of those little things that he had done to Becky, it sounds like Joy's butts was that yeah. to him. You washed those in the wrong direction, dear. Yeah. You better redo them all. You did not file that paperwork like you were supposed to. And remember, he's coming from a military career where he had received awards yeah. for how well he had done his paperwork oh, and this would have gotten under his skin yeah with his failures at work and sheila's believed betrayal gene's mental illness was declining he would return from work and withdraw into his bedroom a room no one else was allowed to enter and he would drink continuously they were probably relieved honestly if he just came home and went to his room like Whew, okay we don't have to worry about him tonight absolutely that's how i would feel with Jean's depression causing him to fade away for the first time in their lives, Becky and the kids were not under a constant string of orders. And while they didn't stray too much from their expected chores because it was just so ingrained in them, with their newfound freedoms, they began to explore the world a little more. And Loretta became more social with friends, going out after school, and even had a few friends over to the house for brief periods of time. Wow. Friends would later report that Jean stayed in his room that was dark, spooky, and foul-smelling. Ew. Stink, stank, stunk. stunk. <laughs> Ew. Yep. He's probably not showering and stuff like that either. No. He had just kind of totally given up on life. During this time, Becky was taking notes of Jean's behavior and was encouraged by her three older children and their escape from under Jean's thumb. A way for her to communicate with the outside world was devised, and she began to communicate through letters with her older children and her sister Vi. In her letters... Now she would refer to Jean as Fatso and began to plan a way to leave him. Good. Yeah. Good. She's got she's got a fire in her belly now. Yeah. Well, she's been encouraged by all these people that she's seeing over the last couple of years. People have been standing up for themselves against Jean. Yeah, she probably never thought that was even an option. And I think it's just such a a switch between calling him oh my Jean and my darling and and now she's calling him Fatso in her letters. <laughs> But she was still very timid and did not have any resources to care for herself. And you have to remember, she actually still has four younger children at home right. that she's caring for. As you're telling me this, I'm so hopeful. <laughs> like I'm like, yeah, you get it, girl. You go, Becky. <laughs> yep. But I know what's going to happen because this is a family annihilation and it's so sad. But I'm, I'm totally enthralled right now. And I'm just like, yeah, go do she's it. She's going to get out. She's <laughs> yeah. going to do it. Yeah. In her letters, she would go back and forth between the courage to leave and the reality of having to be independent. And so she was this person that was pretty introspective. The main motivating factor seemed to be that Jean had refused to let her see her older children that he felt had betrayed him by leaving. And that meant she could not see her grandchildren. Oh, because mm -hmm. they've all moved on now and started having Having children. families, yeah. yeah. And so she wasn't able to see her grandchildren as much as she wanted. This lack of connection was encouraging her to leave Jean. So it seemed to be her main driving factor of yeah. like, no, I want to see my grandchildren. Well, she's so caring and all about her family. What she wanted was a Christmas that they could all spend together. Like that, as a mom, that's what she wanted was all of her children 
under one household with all of our grandkids. Oh, for sure. Mm -hmm. Even with my daughter just in university, when she gets to come home, she's here for Christmas. It's the best. In a letter to Billy, her second oldest son, she wrote, I am a prisoner here and the kids too. I know when I get out, I might need help. Dad has made me like a prisoner and that the freedom might be hard for me to take. Yet I know it will be great having my children come and visit me anytime, having a telephone, going shopping if I want to, going to church. Every time I think of freedom, I want out as soon as possible. But I don't want to put any burden on my children. And so she's in this just back and forth of what is the right thing to do. Yeah. While other members of his family were learning to stand up to him, Gene continued his downward spiral. On December 18th, 1987, he quit his job. He just stayed in his room and drank all night and day. But while the others thought he wasn't paying any attention to their newfound freedoms, he was taking it all in. He watched as Becky made plans to bring everyone together for Christmas and didn't object. Not even when she ordered Christmas presents and spent money that they didn't have. So he just let her go and plan this great big Christmas holiday. Because he knew what was coming. Mm -hmm. On December 22nd, before the four younger children went off to school, Gene woke early and went to Walmart and purchased a 22 caliber handgun and ammunition. When he returned home, the children had caught the school bus. He entered the home and went to the bedroom where Gene Jr. was staying. Gene Jr., 26 at the time, had come home early with his three-year-old daughter, Barbara, earlier than the others because he was having some relationship issues with the little girl's mother. Aww. So they kind of separated. And they were. it sounds like from the letters that Becky was writing to her children that they were trying to work it out. So they were just staying with them for a short time. Right. Becky and Barbara were sharing another room with the other children farther down the hall. He bludgeoned Gene Jr. with a crowbar what? to the point where he could no longer fight back. And then he beat Becky the same way. He just... <gasps> went berserk. So he started with his oldest son and then his wife. Mm -hmm. When he had spent all of his rage turning their bodies into a bloody pulp, he shot them for good measure. <gasps> Becky twice in the head and Gene Jr. was shot once in the chest and four times in the head. Oh my goodness. So this is overkill. Mm -hmm. I was shot. I gasped when you said a crowbar because I was expecting him to just shoot because he'd bought this gun. Well, and he was a marksmanship. Yeah. Yeah. But he had some rage. And when you see stuff like that, that is a personal kill. Yeah. And from all accounts, it sounds like he never liked Gene to begin with. He felt that Gene was the first one that started to turn Becky against him oh, because cause he left. Well, he was the first to leave, but he was the first child. And so when he was born, Becky had to turn her attention to little Gene. Right. And so he was the root of all this betrayal. Wow. And so he just took it out on him. Oh, my goodness. It's believed that Gene Jr. lived long enough to leave some bloody handprints on the walls, a testament of his struggle to get away. But he never did. Oh, and how scary for Gene. His daughter is there. Yeah. Ooh. Gene next turned his attention to Barbara, his three-year-old granddaughter. He <gasps> strangled her to death with a fish stringer. Oh, what a piece of work. After having a beer, he moved Becky and then Gene Jr.'s body into a pit that the children had dug several weeks earlier for a third outhouse. He stopped to have a beer? Uh-huh. It gets worse. Hold on. Little Barbara's body was next to be thrown into the pit. She had been wrapped in a garbage bag. Her clothes were soaked in urine, and it was surmised by the investigators that she had wet herself from the terror that she faced while in the house when her father and grandmother were murdered. Oh, my goodness. Jean poured kerosene on the bodies and covered the hole with scrap pieces of tin and barbed wire to dissuade wild animals and the two family dogs, Bo and Duke, from disturbing the bodies. This is so terrible. Already. Already I'm done. <laughs> You're only at three people. I know. Oh. He went back inside to wait for the rest of his children to arrive. 
While he waited, he attempted to clean up some of the blood. He mopped the floors and opened the windows to air out the smell. He claimed that performing the mindless task to put things in order again calmed him. Well, yeah, because he's such a control freak. Later that day, the bus dropped off the four youngest Simmons children for Christmas break. Loretta, 17, Eddie, 14, Marianne, 11, and little Becky, 8, were told by their father that he had an early Christmas present for each of them, but that it was to be given to them individually. <gasps> Loretta was the first to receive her gift. Her father invited her to view her present, using it as a guise to get her in closer to him. Jean strangled her and then for good measure held her head in a water barrel to make sure that she was dead. Eddie and Marianne received the same treatment. There was some discrepancy if Rebecca was drowned as well or just garroted. All four children's bodies were added on top of the others in the outhouse pit and covered with kerosene as well. This is a special kind of evil. Oh my goodness, to tell your children I have a special gift for you when you get home from school Mm -hmm. and little do they know that that special gift is murdering them yep i'm gonna murder you and throw your body in a pile on top of your family members in an outhouse that's even worse than the garbage i think so gross for the next few days gene passed the time drinking and watching tv biding his time until the rest of his family showed up to celebrate christmas yeah oh my goodness on december 26th Four days later, Jean's third oldest, Billy, who was 22, his wife, Renata, 21, and their 20-month-old infant son, Trey, were the first to arrive to Mockingbird Hill. Police would find Billy and Renata's body in the dining room, lined in a row, covered with their coats. Both had been shot with a 22 caliber handgun. Renata had been shot five times in the head and twice in the neck. Whoa! Mm-hmm. Trey's body would be found wrapped in plastic in one of the abandoned cars in the yard. And his cause of death was drowning. What is he thinking? I don't know. I don't understand why he he does this. But he does this with another grandchild as well. So Sheila, now 24, and Dennis were the last to arrive. They brought with them their two children, Sylvia, 6, and Michael, 21 months. It was assumed that Sheila was the first to enter the house and would get as far as the Christmas tree before she was shot. She probably was going to go put down gifts. Jean would later cover her body with Becky's best tablecloth. Because she was his ladybug. Yeah, she was special. Dennis was shot and killed in the front entrance of the home and placed in the row of bodies in the dining room. Sylvia and Michael were both strangled. The toddler Michael would also be drowned just like the other children, but his body would be wrapped in a garbage bag and placed in another junk car in the property. That's so terrible. Mm-hmm. Oh my gosh. I can't even imagine this taking place. It's so bizarre. How have I not heard of this case? The way he separates the bodies of which ones go in the pit and which ones get to stay in the house and which ones get discarded into abandoned cars is so bizarre to me. Yeah. Well, he's probably has even met the ones in the cars. Like they probably meant nothing to him. No. I wonder if it was like, oh, these aren't my offspring, so they don't get to come in my house. Yeah, they're not my seed. Yeah, because everybody else is his seed, except for the in-laws, though. They stay there. They stay in the house. So I really don't understand why the two babies got put in the cars. Or maybe he couldn't look at them because he keeps them in the house with him for several days afterwards. The ones that are left in the house? Yeah. Huh. Well, and the ones in the cars, they're just like, they're under two. Yeah, they're just so babies. So maybe it was because of that. Maybe he did feel remorse over those babies. I don't know. But the the youngest ones he did remove from the house and he put them in the trunks of abandoned cars that were like in this junkyard. Not around. even in the same car together. No. Oh. Later that day, Gene drove into Russellville where he stopped at a Sears department store and bizarrely picked up some pre-ordered Christmas gifts. Stuff that Becky had ordered. Yeah, but it hadn't got there before Christmas. And so he went and picked them up. 
Who's he giving them to? He's giving them for himself because he's a selfish pig. I just thought that was so bizarre. <laughs> but that night, he would also go to a local bar and have a few drinks. So he was just kind of carrying on with life as normal. Oh. Then he went home and waited out the weekend. For the next two days, he passed the time watching TV and again, drinking more beer and making a list of directions about what to do next. And this is well. And so all these dead bodies are still in the house. Yep. All the dead bodies are lined up. He's like stepping over them to walk through the house. Because remember, it's a mobile home. It's not very wide. And there's going to be clear decomp by now. Mm -hmm. He's so despicable. On Monday morning, December 28th, Gene drove back into Russellville in his son's car. He purchased a second gun from Walmart. And from there, he walked into the law office of Peel, Eddie, and Gibson Law Firm. That's where Kathy Kendrick now worked. He shot her four times in the head and killed her because she had rejected him and reported his unwanted attention. Wow. Next, Gene went to the Taylor Oil Company, where he shot and killed J.D. Schaffin, a 33-year-old firefighter who was working a second part-time job, and wounded the owner, Rusty Taylor. Rusty had been the intended victim. He was the owner of the Sinclair Mini Mart, where Gene had recently quit. He shot him twice in the chest, but Rusty would live. J.D., unfortunately, was just at the wrong place at the wrong time. He Aww. was shot through the eye, and he was killed instantly. Whoa. So he was just an innocent bystander. Yeah. Gene next drove to the Sinclair Mini Mart where he had recently quit his job because he felt that he had not been adequately compensated for his work. There, he opened fire, wounding two more people. Roberta Woolery was shot in the shoulder and the face when she attempted to call for help. David Salier, the manager of the store, was shot in the head as he tried to divert attention by throwing a chair at Gene. Oh. Another customer would join in by throwing cans of food and pop, causing Gene to flee. Both Roberta and David would live. Afterwards, Gene went to the office of the Woodline Motor Freight Company, where he shot and wounded yet another woman. Can you guess who it's going to be? Now's his ex-boss. Yep. Supervisor. Yep. Joyce Butts was shot once in the head and once in the chest, but she would survive. Wow. See, she he, meant business. You ain't taking me down, boy. That's right. <laughs> well, and he's shooting them with a twenty-two, which is not a high caliber. And so that's why it seems like he had to shoot them so many times. Because right, I was thinking... That makes sense then. He's this marksman. Why the heck is it taking him so many shots to kill people? But I guess it's because of the twenty-two caliber. So I wonder why he didn't choose a more powerful gun. Maybe well, maybe he, he couldn't get it. that at Walmart. True. <laughs> I mean, I'm glad that he didn't. After the 45-minute killing spree... Jean just sat down and started chatting with a former co-worker and asked her if she would call the cops, trying to reassure her that he had only come for Joyce. He said that he had gotten everybody that had hurt him. The list that he had constructed while sitting among the dead bodies of his family was complete. Oh, Marlanta. <laughs> Can okay. you imagine being this employee? <laughs> yes, I know. You I just, okay. That. You've just witnessed her get shot and killed. And now he's just talking to you nonchalantly? Well, she's not killed. She's still sitting there, like, oh, right. yeah, bleeding she lives. out. Yeah, yeah, she lives. And, he's and like, so he just sits hey, down. Hey, darling, can you call the cops for me? I'm done now. Yeah, I just came for Joyce. Don't worry, I'm not going to harm you. That poor girl. She would have been terrified. Yeah, that's a new one. Because usually they don't leave anyone in their wake when they do stuff like that. No, but or he was just so calculated and precise on who had it coming. And also to turn himself in, that is surprising to me too. I would have thought he would have taken off and tried to start this all over again. Family annihilators usually do one of two things, right? They mm -hmm. take off and they start a new family. Or they commit suicide. Yeah. And he does neither. He just sits down and tells the receptionist, hey, can you call the cops? Yeah, that's always so interesting. So bizarre. They turn themselves in. It was literally that he had completed the list that he had made. And in his list, like you can see that he actually wrote directions between like, I'm going to go to this place and then I'm going to take this road to get here. Like he actually made 
a list of how he was going to proceed. And he reached the end of the list. So he could do it in the most proficient way because he did that in 45 minutes, which is not a long time when you're going from place to place. No, and he had to be proficient because people were calling it into the police as he was going through the town. Yeah, that's just so bizarre. I feel like if you were willing to call the police and turn yourself in, why didn't you turn yourself in before? You know, like when you have all of these thoughts and, you know, you're thinking, I'm going to kill my entire family. Well, then admit yourself somewhere, you know, get the help. No, he felt justified in what he did. Oh, for sure he did. Yeah, according to him, it needed to be done. Right. I'm just so shocked that he's willing to turn himself in after. Yeah. Oh, I'm shaking my head. When the Russellville police arrived, they took possession of two guns that Gene had used on his murderous rampage, an H&R 22 with a 3-inch barrel and a Ruger 22 with a 9.5-inch barrel. They took Gene into custody without resistance. Police would only learn of the family's murders because they were unable to get a hold of anyone at Mockingbird Hill. They sent a cruiser out to the property. <gasps> Can you imagine finding that? No. The scene that met them was one never to be forgotten. It was made even more gruesome because of the dried blood spatter and the accumulated blood was all lit up with the glow of the Christmas tree lights. (gasps) No. Mm -hmm. It would take police until the next day to find all the bodies hidden at Mockingbird Hill. Oh my gosh. If you guys could see my face right now. That's Can terrible. you envision that, though? I, this Christmas scene of the tree lit up with lights and presents under the tree and all of these bodies laying with coats over them or tablecloths over them just everywhere. Some of the police officers that responded, what they remember is that the lights of the tree were like glistening in the pools of blood. Yeah. And it's so shocking, I guess, too, because it represents such different things. Our Christmas tree is usually joy and happiness and family and celebration. So to see that with all these dead bodies and murder and mayhem and blood and gore laying around it. Yeah. Yeah. It's such a contradiction. Those poor policemen. Yeah. I couldn't imagine. No. From his containment cell, Gene was transferred to the hospital and was admitted for a full 30-day psychiatric assessment. From the time of the arrest until he was transported to the psychiatric hospital in Little Rock, he didn't speak a word to authorities. I'm not surprised. No. The transfer took place in secret because the police had received threats on Gene's life. Phone calls were coming in saying that Gene would never make it to trial. That people would take matters into their own hands. So when they transferred him, they did it in secret. Gene was tried in two separate trials. There was so much evidence to sift through at Mockingbird Hill, it was going to take a long time to process it, so the prosecutors separated the trials into the family murders and the town murders. Oh, that's interesting. Mm. I don't know that I've ever heard that before. The first trial lasted six hours. What? Yeah. (laughs) Six hours? Six hours. I think it was just an evidentiary trial because Gene pled guilty on May 12, 1988 due to the two murder charges and four attempted murder charges, all committed during the shooting rampage on December 28th. Oh, okay. I wonder if he was disappointed that he didn't get to kill them. Oh, I'm sure. Especially in the case of Joyce. Yeah. During this trial, evidence would be given that Becky was planning on leaving Jean with the financial help of her mother and the encouragement of her three older children. And it was speculated that they had all gathered at Christmas to finalize those plans. And somehow Jean had found out about them. He felt betrayed by his whole family. And that's what led to his rage spilling over onto other people that he felt had wronged him. Yeah, you can see how he'd make that connection. Yeah. On May 16, 1988, a judge sentenced Gene to death by lethal injection, plus 147 years in prison. Oh, good. Yeah. Again, we're seeing this where the judge is like, just in case yeah, your you get out. execution gets stayed. 
Let's give you some jail time. At the time of his sentencing, Gene made it known that he agreed with his punishment and did not wish to appeal it, saying, To those who oppose the death penalty in my particular case, anything short of death would be cruel and unusual punishment. But that wouldn't stop people who oppose the death penalty and other inmates from appealing on Gene's behalf. That's interesting. Yeah. So are they wanting to appeal because he doesn't deserve to be put to death? Like they're opposed to the death penalty? Or no, let's put him in jail and let him get his. So Gene came out saying like, I don't want to appeal anything. Please just, you know, let's get it over and done with. And the people that appealed say that, no, 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 you can't throw out the appeals process. He has to go through appeals. Oh. Because other inmates felt that their appeals would be less effective if Gene set the precedence that death penalties didn't have to be appealed. Okay. Yeah. And they were really upset by it. Gene had to be moved out of the general population in the prison because his life was constantly being threatened. Oh, I bet. So it was a huge thing. They should have left him in there. Yeah. The courts would reject all of the appeals raised on Gene's behalf based on the testimony of a psychiatrist that said that Gene was of sound mind and fully understood the ramifications of waiving the appeals process. During the court proceedings, Gene made the statement, I, Ronald Gene Simmons Sr., wanted to be known that it is my wish and my desire that absolutely no action by anyone be taken to appeal or in any way change this sentence. It is further respectfully requested that this sentence be carried out expeditiously. Gene made this declaration to the court under oath. Huh. On February 10th, 1989, Ronald Gene Simmons was tried in the circuit court of Johnson County for the 14 members of his family that he murdered. Ugh. Most of the trial went off without incidents until the end. In front of a crowded courtroom, Gene had joined lawyers in a conference at the bench of Judge John Patterson when he punched the prosecutor <gasps> on the chin and allegedly reached for one of the officer's guns who was trying to subdue him. What? Yeah, he just flipped out. The conference at the bench had been about reading five pages of notes found in Jean's safety deposit box. The letters were from Jean to Sheila. And so these were like love letters to Sheila that he had put in. And I don't know if he didn't want them read or interpretations made of what he meant by them. But they had approached the bench to discuss whether they should be admitted or not into evidence. And he flipped out. Wow. So he's okay with everyone knowing that he's murdered babies in his family. But he doesn't want anyone to know about his love of Sheila. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That he raped and tormented his daughter. Well, no, he was fine with them knowing that he had sex with her because he admitted it during the family council session. So then it's more of these are too precious. I don't want them shared. Yeah, I think so. That's even more sickening that he wasn't even humiliated by his actions. No, by all accounts, it sounds like he like really thought that he loved Sheila, that she was the love of his life, not Becky. That's sick. Yeah. The jury convicted Gene on all 14 counts of capital murder and sentenced him to death by lethal injection. Gene's chosen method. Following the trial, Gene notified the trial judge of his desire to waive his right to appeal right away. Gene pleaded again with the judge for a speedy execution. In his statement, Gene said, Let the torture and the suffering in me end. On May 31st, 1990, Arkansas Governor Bill Clinton, (laughs) yes, President Bill Clinton, signed Gene's execution warrant. For his last meal, he had a well-done filet mignon, tomato slices, a banana, six dinner rolls, and two raw onions. What? Two raw onions to top all that off? Yep. I don't mind a slice or two. Like, I like onion, but just to munch down two whole raw onions, that's a little much. Yeah, he ate them like an apple. And I just can't get the picture of the ogre Shrek out of my mind. Yeah, he belongs in a swamp. I think it's fitting because Gene really was this recluse ogreish dirtbag. Ugh, and stinky... Gene would be the first person in Arkansas to die from lethal injection. At 9.02 p.m. 
on June 25th, the first solution of lethal injection was administered. One has to wonder if justice was truly served. Gene requested the death penalty. From his statements at the trial and the waiving of appeals, Gene did not want to live in a world without his beloved Sheila, and that he found it torturous to do so. So does it not seem more fitting that he would have to live out his days in misery instead of giving him the death that he wanted? Yeah. So that's why I really question, is this really justice? Especially after he showed no mercy to anyone else. No, he was so ruthless. No, not when he lived, not when he worked with them, and definitely not in their death. Yeah, so he still got to have control over his own death, yep. over how it all went down. So I thought, this is not justice. He should have to have the exact opposite of what he wants to happen to have. Yeah. yeah. And why didn't he just do it himself? Yeah, like, I honestly, you're wanting to die. You don't want to live without Sheila, with your little ladybug. So weird, right? It is. But if it's any solace, though, his death by lethal injection does not sound like it was as peaceful as he was suspecting. Witness accounts say that at first it appeared as if he nodded off to sleep, but after a couple of minutes, he started to cry out and cough, and his struggle to breathe was so violent that the gurney that he was strapped to shook. When his body finally became still, his face turned blue and then purple. It would take a full 17 minutes for Ronald Gene Simmons to be pronounced dead. Wow. He probably didn't like that out of control feeling. Yeah. Wow. After his execution, there was not a single family member left that would even claim his body for burial. His body would be interned at a pauper's field at the Lincoln Memorial Lawn in Varner. And that's the crazy case of the dirtbag Ronald Gene Simmons, the man who chose Christmas as the perfect time to take out his revenge on all those who had done him wrong, including 14 members of his immediate family. The dirtbag responsible for the largest family massacre in the United States. Well, Merry freaking Christmas, everybody. (laughs) Wow. And Christmas is supposed to be such a wonderful time. Well, and it's just so awful that Becky would have been feeling like, oh my goodness, I'm able to realize my dream of having everybody Mm -hmm. at my house. And even that he took her life before that happened. Yeah. Was just that controlling factor. Yeah, it wasn't after when everybody was there, but he needed to probably do it one by one or they could have overpowered him. 14 of them? And so unfortunate that she was so close, like Becky was so close to realizing that dream and getting away and finally getting her life back. Mm-hmm. Wow. And for those babies that never even got to have a life. Yeah. Well, what a disgusting human. Well, that's it for our Christmas story for you today. <laughs> we did promise you Christmas buried motive style, and I believe that Melissa delivered. <laughs> so thanks for that. Hopefully you'll tuck into bed on Christmas Eve with a more pleasant Christmas story. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> we hope that you stay away from the Grinches and have yourself a wonderful holiday. Merry Christmas, everyone. See ya. Bye. live here at buried motives welcome back for another episode well we're not live so i shouldn't oh. say that yeah <laughs> and i didn't even you get john i was in. like yep here we go You're like oh this is our intro now <laughs> and made the best pen paul paul who she's pinning paul the long winding driveway with rutted red clay that was pra- oh, the long winding driveway that was rutted long running driveway Whoa. how long of a running it was driveway really really was long it? i'm gonna tell you about it like six times <laughs> Anything to make Christy laugh. <laughs> it took me like five minutes before to stumble over one sentence. And then I'm on a roll and the stupid train goes. <sighs> Chocolate break. Okay, who's opposing this? Honestly. 
I don't think they should have gave him the death penalty. No, because that's what he wanted. Lock him up in solitary confinement and... Yeah, let him think about what he's done. Give yep. him the longest time out ever. Feed him raw onions for the rest of his life. No, he'd like that. <laughs> Cook them. Whatever you can buy for $40 a month, that's what he gets to eat. Yeah. Yeah, I got nothing. <laughs> Hey, we're live, pal, and we'd love for you to come check out our podcast, Tales from the Estate. Each week, we talk about our top five favorite somethings. My beautiful wife, Caitlin, likes to share all sorts of random facts. Yeah. Did you know that cows have accents? We did now. But we also review all sorts of snacks and other great things. And so if you love everything random, I think you'd enjoy Tales from the Estate. So come check us out. Yeah. Okay, thanks. Bye. Jeff Woods and I'm shining a light on music and the rock stars who make it. He just was one of those people. He, he stood out. He was a magic guy. He really was a magic guy. Had all, we all have force. He had the same amount of force as we all have. This was before Led Zeppelin. Robert was full on. I mean, he was Led Zeppelin without the band behind him. He had the hair, the jeans, the whole thing, you know. And he was amazing. The Records and Rockstars podcast heard around the world and yours to hear wherever you get podcasts. All the episodes from JeffWoodsRadio.com. Another Sound Off Media Company podcast.